Hello, and welcome to this month's installment of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed-indexed quarterly journal edited by Yale medical, graduate, and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the fields of biology and medicine. Each issue of the journal is devoted to a focus topic, and through two episodes of this podcast, we will take you through the past, present, and future of the issue's subject matter. Today's episode is the first in a series of three devoted to our December 2017 issue on gene editing. I am your host, Neil Ravindra, a fourth-year PhD student in the Molecular Biophysics and Biochemistry Department at Yale, and with me in the studio is my co-host for this special series on our latest issue highlighting gene editing, John Ventura, a fifth-year microbiology PhD student. Hello, Neil. Hey, how's it going? It's good. Ready to talk about some gene editing issues? Absolutely. All right. So, so what, what, let's get started then. So what do we really mean when we say gene editing? Well, that's like, that's the million dollar question, right? And that's what's rolled around. People hear the term gene editing and they get all sorts of emotional responses or different types of responses to this. I mean, technically, all we're discussing and talking about is changing in some form or another, modifying in some form or another, the genome of an organism. And that simply means every single organism on Earth has a genome that is comprised of a nucleic acid, well, like uh, well, a sequence of nucleic acids. It's mainly DNA, if we're going to talk about cellular organisms of some sort, or even multicellular organisms. And uh, and, and, and for certain viruses, it would be RNA. That this, that there's, but there's a sequence that uh, carries information, a sequence of, of nucleotide bases. And this information is, re, um, is, is essentially tr- tr- translated and trans, well, transcribed and translated into um, functional forms of, uh, uh, of like biological activity. So essentially proteins, mm-hmm. or in some cases, um, uh, more like different uh, or RNAs that are functional. The, that's like the, the, how things in, 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 in the cellular uh, level of biology works. So this information is encoded in the DNA. You change the information, like changing the text of, of, of a book or of a speech or anything. If you just change the letters, you change the meaning of the words, you change the meaning of the speech. You're editing the tra- the transcript of a speech is the same thing as editing the gene home of an organism, and so it could have many different types of effects. You know? Yeah, so I mean that sounds like a very very complicated thing to do, right? It's not it's not quite like editing your your school essay on your Word document. It's more like very complicated, right? And it's really hot because of some natural forms of gene editing. So there's some sort of this change going on in nature. Right, so but that's the thing. People yeah. look at um, the process of modifying genomes as a as a overall like a synthetic uh, process, as something that is uh, taken out of the natural world, uh, placed into the the artificial environment of the laboratory, and essentially propagated by uh, human intention. Uh, and and the thing is, is that almost uh, essentially every single technology that is available 
to the researcher for genome editing is ultimately derived from a natural version of it, a natural source. These things have evolved in the context of the natural world. So for instance, if we're going to bring up just right now the most popular version of this, like the, the, the one that people uh, would know uh, outside of the, the, the scientific community more, uh, would be the CRISPR-Cas9 system. That is, a, uh, a, 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 that is an adaptive immune system in bacteria and archaea to stop viral infection. And all you – so you talked about it being complicated. Mm-hmm. You talked about it being sophisticated and it seems to be oh, – must be more difficult than using a word processor. But if I can just isolate the, the actual DNA component of uh, the actual genome, place it into a test tube, <laughs> and then I just take two components of the CRISPR-Cas9 system, I can change any um, base of, of that genome into anything I want mm-hmm. over a few-day period. That's what I mean. Like it, it's actually uh, uh, a mistake to say it's too complicated. It's if you have the components, simple, it's actually right? yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. It's 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 um, frighteningly simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, so uh, like going on more on this line of adapt- adaptive immunity, there's really right a universe of of uh, an entire universe of viral responses that organisms have evolved to to def- defend against these these pathogens. Mm-hmm. And and viruses, <clears throat> I think. So if if you think about the relationship between the virus and the the cell in which that virus infects, you know, you can redefine it as um, the virus being a rogue piece of self replicating DNA or RNA. It's a genome that's gone rogue essentially, and it hijacks a cell in order to commandeer its. Uh, ability to produce what I call the the functional units of the cellular biology, the protein or the or the uh, 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 the functional RNA. It's essentially use the cell to use my information, and the, a lot of times the, in the process of uh, uh, the virus incorporating itself within the cellular context, it actually will edit that cell's genome. Like this, there's multiple examples of this. In bacteria, there's lysogenic phages that insert themselves into the genome. They cut and paste themselves in and out of the genome. Uh, y- y- the human genome itself, from chromosome 1 all the way to chromosome 23, is riddled with uh, different versions of transposable elements and retrotransposons that ultimately were once viruses that top and skip around as cells divide and propagate. It's, it- it's kind of amazing, really. I mean, like... So just at the vi- just at the level of, of 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 the virus and cell, like genome editing for many um, um, infectious agents is a, is a way of life. It's like mm-hmm. a, it's a means of of replication. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that's <clears throat> and, and biologists have kind of have noticed that for for a really long time. So there there really is a long history of of mimicking nature in the lab. Do you do you want to talk about that maybe in more detail? Yeah, well, yeah, I can give two examples. Um, the first example is uh, going back to the, the early 1970s where we had the, real, the first real uh, uh, academic uh, uh, debate about biotechnology or whether it should be used and how, it, it, and, and how that debate um, uh, 
escaped into the public domain and it became a public debate. And that was using restriction enzymes mm -hmm. for the first time. Restriction enzymes are a protein that are found in, multi in, in, in most bacteria. And it was one of the first uh, immune defense systems discovered to chop up in, uh, DNA that was from a bacteriophage. Um, so the that's so that when when this was discovered, they say why why can't we just simply take the little piece of information from the bacteria that codes for the restriction enzyme, the, the the DNA, the gene? We can place that on a little tiny piece of DNA that we made ourselves, put that into another bacteria that doesn't, you know, and then we can just make this protein uh, at copious amounts, and and then use that in the laboratory to. Essential for diagnostic purposes, we can use that in the laboratory to, to clone genes uh, indefinitely, uh, almost interminably. <laughs> like we can, mm -hmm. this, it, 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 people were terrified at this, and there was actually a moratorium that was put in place. Uh, that said that uh, before um, uh, the, the proper ethical discussion was conducted, we we will not use. Uh, this technology. That was like the first. So, so it's mimicking nature in the lab. They're like, oh, my God, we'll just use the tools that bacteria have already come up with in nature and we'll do that in the laboratory for the first real um, gene editing uh, uh, in, in, in vivo experiments like mm -hmm. uh, in, in technologies. And the other one I think is really important, too, to talk about is, you know, it's a slightly different process, but we're talking about inserting information into a genome. That's a type of editing. For the last 15 years or so, uh, agriculture in the United States has uh, been essentially dominated by a handful of large corporations that employ genetically modified organisms uh, as, their, as their seed crop to sell uh, to uh, large uh, agricultural um, um, enterprises around the country. And the genetic modification process involves inserting a herbicide resistance marker into the, wheat, uh, the corn or the soybean, uh, the canola plant or whatever is being used to essentially allow the farmer to just spray the farm, grow a monoculture of this, reduce the, uh, the weed element and the, 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 as a result, the, the crop will grow uh, with more vigor and with less competition from the weeds. And so it's like you can remove the weeds without harming the crops. In order to insert that herbicide-resistance gene, which then becomes a protein that breaks down the herbicide in the, in the cells of the plant, they used a bacteria called Agrobacterium tumefaciens. Agrobacterium is found uh, ubiquitously in the soil. It infects uh, uh, plants uh, naturally. There's multiple different types. It uses a secretion system to secrete its own uh, uh, mobile DNA to essentially incorporate itself into the plant genome. And what it actually incorporates is genes that uh, uh, create artificial uh, plant growth hormones. So it's like generate a huge tumor around the colony of bacteria to protect it, and then it generates its own food source, which is it's fascinating, right? So it's the right. like thing is like in nature, you'll see these massive crown galls, these, these, these tumors that are on plants, but instead we just like, why don't you just take that, put anything that we want into these, these mobile DNA elements, and then 
we could use this to to genetically modify plants. You know, and you know, is that, is that why you think? Um, so you're talking about the in general the process of molecular cloning, right? And and transfection. Yeah. Why 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 have people been so for a long time fascinated with gene editing in general? Do you think is it because of this potential for agricultural applications or? Well, I mean, there's multiple ways you can answer this question, right? I mean, if you think of it just as a, uh, if you think of it more of a practical way, you could say like, well, the applications are endless. Applying biotechnology ultimately is a means of. Uh, 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 enhancing or modifying or modulating the, our, our civilization. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, like, people take that very seriously. That's one of the main interests. It's like we can apply this to, in some, ha- in some way, um, change uh, uh, the, the environment in which we live, for better or for worse. The possibilities are endless. You can target so many different aspects of, of uh, human pathology at the genetic level. You know, and we're not even talking about infectious diseases here, but that's something we could talk about later if you want, or even just antibiotic resistance that's happening in bacteria. I'm talking about people who are born with congenital Mendelian uh, gen- uh, diseases, or like not even Mendelian diseases, but just like gen- like if you can pinpoint the the correlative genetic part of a disease and find the cause, like the etiology of it, and you can say, oh my God, this base should be this base. Then you can. I mean, the idea is you can completely eradicate that that condition from the human species. Mm-hmm. I mean, that kind of power is crazy, but that's what this is offering, like potentially, right? That's why it's garnered interest and garnered so much, uh, you know, just mystique. <laughs> that's why people get emotional about it, <laughs> right? Like, that's. But in terms of like the the recent trendiness of the of the topic at large, do you think that's because of the ability to specifically target and edit parts of the genome? Yes. So is that is that the real the key breakthrough? I think the key breakthrough is the precision, mm-hmm. and the precision is now um, being exhibited in, in in the laboratory. It's we have used highly precise gene editing technologies to cure muscular dystrophy in a mouse model. The precision is allowing for what has been just a, you know, a conjectural, uh, subjective conversation about the possibilities of gene editing to actually being like real consequences in animal models before they go into clinical trials. And yet you're, you're really just talking about monogenic diseases, which are you know, diseases that arise from, from one gene kind of going bad or getting mutated or something like that. But what happens when a disease state is caused by something like multiple genes going awry or, you know, and having to track all of that down? So, you know, it seems like there's still significant challenges. There's definitely significant challenges. I mean, something like autism spectrum, it's, it's, it's even difficult to pinpoint the definition of the condition. So, yeah, through charting uh, heredity. Uh, charting heredity yeah. and doing um, a, a large-scale uh, uh, genome-wide association studies. And um, say, essentially saying, like, okay, th- this large cohort of people uh, that have been diagnosed by psychologists with autism, they all have a particular 
a percentage of them have this particular uh, muta- mutation. A percentage of them have this particular mutation is highly enriched in this population and not in people without it. So they have this association, and that's like over a thousand. <laughs> it's very difficult to simply just say, why don't we just introduce um, – uh, the, the the existing gene editing technologies that we have, and say like, well, we'll just correct it. Sometimes it's not really that simple. Mm-hmm. For for thousands of other genes, it is actually for con- uh, that create uh, different conditions that, that have been well documented. It might actually be that simple. Um, something like the, just muscular dystrophy, for example. You know, just for the sake of time, it's it was essentially. Um, Eliminating a small portion of the dystrophin gene, which is quite large, just eliminating a small portion of it and getting rid of that portion, putting every putting that information back into a sensible frame, which in into like in genetic terms means this information now codes for a proper protein that works. And um, that's all it took. It took just a single deletion and then allowing the cells that have acquired that new new um, um, uh, that new mutation that was beneficial, that new beneficial mutation to uh, just grow. And over time, the mouse lost the muscular dystrophy condition. That's, that, that, that was just an example of just one issue, like one thing that you could target. But in terms of um, you know, polygenetic trace, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's a different story. And one thing you can actually do is if something like, um, something like uh, cancers, especially in leukemias, you don't actually have to target the gene itself. You just have maybe you just target a component of uh, the immune system that fights against the leukemia. You see what I mean? You can actually simplify the, the the therapy and say, why don't we just eradicate the leukemia better instead of preventing the leukemia from coming back? That's the other option, and that has actually been done in clinical trials too. Gen- uh, introducing and editing uh, T cells to better fight the tumor. It, that 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 is in itself a very promising gene uh, gene therapy that has been open because because of gene editing technology and because of gene editing itself has has allowed to exist. So I think you touched a bit about some of the the challenges of gene therapy when it, when it's not feasible to use yeah. it in the lab is is because there's a there high risk of delivery. Um, because we need a vector to, mm. to give some of these gene products or these proteins that can actually do the, the gene editing. We need a delivery system to get those into, into humans. And that's an, that's an extremely important point, Neil. Like the, and it's great that you bring that up because you don't just throw DNA in a person. The DNA has to be in the context of something that, that is usable. Like, you know, you have to put it in uh, uh, it's like you can't just have a bunch of random pieces of paper thrown at someone's face. You need to put it in a binder and organize it. You know what I mean? Like you have to have like a, something that is going to deliver this information and this 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 uh, uh, this technology to the patient or to the or to the system that's under investigation. And d- gene editing vectors is a whole field of research. So. The best way that people have done this is, again, using mim- mimicking nature, using what nature has already done. So we were talking about retroviruses. Well, what's a famous retrovirus? HIV. <laughs> HIV is 
a member of of what is called a class of retroviruses called lentiviruses, just because they uh, develop a slow pathology. <laughs> AIDS takes a long time to develop. That's why they call it lentiviruses. You take lentivirus and you take away – the lentivirus has a genome. You take away every component of that genome that makes that lentivirus infectious but allows you to incorporate DNA and insert DNA into uh, a cell – it won't cause a disease. It's not HIV anymore. It's a disarmed lentivirus. You just created a brilliant, like, molecular gene delivery tool. So they're lentiviral gene delivery vectors. And you did this with adenovirus, which causes, like, 15% of the common colds around the world. And uh, that's another one. They're slightly more uh, – there's an issue with those because they could cause some inflammation and cause issues. And there's adeno-associated vectors – these are all different ways of doing this, and they're not perfect. And sometimes, and this is true, if you're using DNA gene editing and you're inserting things into genomes to edit those genomes, you can uh, disturb the normal functionality of that information, in, in, and you can actually cause uh, abnormalities in, uh, like like cancers. And, and that's something that you have to be very careful. These technologies have to be improved upon. Yeah, and there's, a, there's actually a very, very sad uh, and tragic story about that, about Jesse Gelsinger. Who yeah, was, she, yeah, we should definitely go into the dangers yeah. of gene technology here. Right, and so, so Jesse Gelsinger was, it was the, really the first person that died uh, by gene therapy. So he was born with a mutation in a gene called ornithine transcarbamylase, uh, uh, or OTC, which is mm-hmm. an enzyme that's made in the liver at, that breaks down proteins. So without this OTC enzyme, ammonia actually accumulates inside the body, um, and it poisons neurons in the brain. So in, in 1998, Mark Batshaw and James Wilson, two pediatricians at the University of Pennsylvania, agreed to uh, Jesse's request to participate in their new gene therapy clinical trial. So what Batshaw and Wilson were trying to, to do was to insert the OTC gene into the body via a virus that would be delivered into the bloodstream so that it can infect the liver. These infected liver cells then would start to produce that OTC enzyme and correct the enzyme deficiency. So for their virus, as John mentioned, they, they used actually adenovirus, which is associated with the common cold. Um, but unfortunately, the, the evening after Jell Singer, the, the 18-year-old, received the therapy, he spiked a fever, and his liver started shutting down. And because of his disease, which already compromised liver function, his ammonia levels started to build up, and his kidney shut down, and he fell into a, com- a coma. And then tragically, four days after the injection of the gene therapy, Jesse Jell Singer died at the age of 18. So, so this, this is brought about a really big uh, investigation by the University of Pennsylvania, and they uncovered, uh, excuse me, by the FDA uh, for the University of Pennsylvania, and they uncovered that a lot of the animal experiments that were used to establish the safety of the adenovirus was performed too hastily, and the Gelsinger family wasn't informed that one of those monkeys that received a high dose of the adenovirus actually died. Other human patients also treated with the gene therapy uh, exhibited striking fevers, inflammatory responses, and signs of liver failure, but these results were both ignored and underreported. That's terrible. Yeah, and and even more so, lastly, one of the the pediatricians, James Wilson, had founded a company called Genova that 
had a financial stake in the success of the OTC trial. So, so it's still debated exactly what caused Jell uh, Singer's immune system to react so violently towards this adenovirus. But after the OTC trial, the field of gene therapy was really caught in a rut. Um, and, it, and this particular trial highlighted just some, but a lot of the ethical concerns surrounding gene therapy. So, so I don't know if you, you want to. We're going to talk a lot more about yeah. the ethics of gene therapy in a future episode. Yeah. So, so we have uh, the deputy editors for YJBM special issue on gene editing with us. We have here in the studio Fatima Mirza, the current managing editor of YJBM, and also a second year medical student, as well as Mike Lacey, uh, a sixth year PhD candidate in the molecular biophysics and biochemistry department here at Yale. And Fatima and Mike, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having us. Absolutely. So, so you know, to either of you, why, why did you choose uh, the topic uh, for this topic for a special issue of YJBM? Yeah, so you guys have already talked about a lot of different things, and um, I think the, the driving point that you brought up earlier is that the technologies available to do genome editing in various ways are really rapidly advancing um, and the whole field is now, you know, in the past couple of years and the next couple of years, it's really, at, I think, kind of a transition period where things are really, really expanding rapidly. There's lots of new techniques available to do things that haven't been able to be done before. Um, and it's a really exciting time. Um, and so we thought as, as an issue for the journal, um, this would be a good time to kind of gather a lot of um, overviews and perspectives and input from a lot of uh, researchers and uh, people with uh, clinical experience as well from uh, beyond Yale, all around the world, um, to give kind of a, an overview of uh, a lot of the things that are going on in the field right now, because it, be, it can be tough to keep track of everything and keep up with all the news. Oh, it's a huge field. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I made the mistake of uh, putting a, a few CRISPR papers on my ReadCube account, and now all of my recommendations are yeah, it's all blowing Chris, up yeah. with only CRISPR papers, which is mm -hmm. not my only field. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a, a timely, a timely uh, topic. What kind of a what kind of articles did you did you really seek new research articles mostly, or you know what what kind of issue what kind of what can we expect from the upcoming issue? So most of the articles uh, in this issue are reviews and perspectives. Um, so they're either covering kind of the historical aspects of the field, um, some of the new developments and new techniques, and discussing uh, in really a lot more detail than what we're going into here, uh, but really discussing in detail how these technologies work um, from a biological perspective as well as from a practical perspective. Um, Talking about the the advantages and limitations of different kinds of techniques, um, you know, there's not really any single magic bullet out there. It's kind of, you know, depending on what application you need. Um, there are different technologies available, um, and also we have several pieces that discuss in a lot more depth the ethical and legal and social implications of a lot of these issues, which is something that. A lot of people throughout the field are discussing and thinking about and trying to act very responsibly in a way. 
And I think something that's really exciting about this issue is that you can be a very seasoned scientist who has devoted their entire life to this field, or you could be someone who doesn't has heard about gene editing but doesn't really know what it's about, and there's something for you in the issue. Um, and I think that has been one of the most exciting parts for us as editors to read through, to really look at some of that you know cutting edge research, but then also you know dial it back and think is this even an ethical thing to do? And if it is ethical, what are the ethical frameworks and how should we approach that? And how as are, should we as a society approach this sort of topic? So it's it's been very exciting because we have gotten that breadth and and beyond that, the sorts of authors who have contributed, you know, come from all around the world and you can really see that unique flair in each of the articles within the issue. So you should definitely check it out and, and, and go through it. That's exciting. So we should get in the weeds a little bit about mm-hmm. uh, about some uh, uh, about some of those articles that you guys particularly found really fascinating. Like that's something that I would like to mm-hmm. hear. So like Fatima and Mike, um, well, let's let's uh, let me ask you like what articles did you choose to want to highlight for this for this issue, and uh, why did you like it? Why did you find it interesting? That's what I that's what I want to know. Yeah. So one of the the ones I chose to highlight today um, is actually something that you guys have not talked about yet. Um, Excellent. <laughs> so it's a, a review article um, from a couple of Yale-based authors. Um, so the labs of Peter Glazer and Mark Saltzman. Um, the lead author is Elias Quiano. So this is a review about uh, the techniques of gene editing that use peptide nucleic acids to make actually kind of synthetic complexes with a gene or a genome inside of an organism. What's a peptide nucleic acid? So, yeah, so you talked about how a lot of these techniques are driven by or kind of inspired by biological systems. Peptide nucleic acids are actually one of those things that was purely synthetic. It's Mm. instead of using a DNA backbone, you can have when two DNA strands match up in sequence and they bind to each other it's actually possible to create a synthetic molecule that rather than a DNA backbone, it's a peptide sequence, but it still presents the same uh, base pairs that could bind to a complementary sequence of DNA. And so this kind of molecule is very stable and very uh, much more easy to chemically modify and work with in the lab. And so what uh, these researchers have done between the Glazer Lab and the Saltzman Lab for several years, actually, um, they've been using these kinds of molecules to show how you can introduce a peptide nucleic acid that will recognize a particular sequence in a gene inside um, a target cell or organism, um, and it'll bind in such a way that it'll induce either some chemical or biochemical change in the genome and kind of cause the cell to uh, take over and edit that gene Mm. or to cut out a piece of DNA or to replace it with some other synthetic piece of DNA. Uh, But this, the technologies here are similarly rapidly expanding and have a lot of the advantages, but also limitations um, compared to other kinds of techniques. Um, That's interesting that you bring that up. That's something that we didn't really touch upon, Neil, which is 
you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm waxing on and on about we can deliver the DNA and then we can deliver this into the cell. But then, like, you ask yourself, well, then, then what? Like, mm-hmm. uh, DNA in, in general is an inert molecule. You put DNA in a test tube, you don't get a baby. You know, you need to put it into a cell. Mm-hmm. So, so when the peptide nucleic acid induces some sort of is DNA binding, or so? How is the cell actually repairing itself so, yeah. to introduce the, uh, the the modification, introduce the change? Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a few uh, mechanisms here, and you can look at the paper for a lot more detail than yes. what I can get into here. Uh, but basically, by inducing a uh, a structural change in the genome, or maybe blocking the binding of some other. Mm-hmm. protein or bit of DNA or RNA, um, this this peptide nucleic acid DNA complex itself has to get, basically it gets recognized by proteins that are already in the cell, already kind of surveilling the genome to look for anything unusual. And they see the these proteins would encounter this strange chemical complex and say, oh, you know, looks like there's something wrong with my DNA. I better cut it out and fix it. Mm-hmm. And, and at that point, the cell's repair mechanisms take over. And if you've also included um, or delivered along with this uh, gene editing agent, if you've delivered a synthetic copy of the correct sequence, the cell will take over and incorporate that correct sequence in place of the targeted sequence that you in, in, uh kind of designed and chose. And so stepping back, that's actually how a lot of techniques work is by um, allowing the cell's natural repair mechanisms to take over once the researcher has uh, introduced some small way to identify and disrupt a Hmm. a particular target in the genome. So like the the perturbation triggers the DNA repair mechanisms that are already in place. And Mm -hmm. then if you have... Of a template that is like proper DNA sequence, mm-hmm. the cell will be like, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm going to put, I'm going to copy this proper DNA sequence and replace the one that is now have been that has been damaged. Mm-hmm. That and the damage was caused by the technology. That's just that's just radical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, and it's and it turns out to be a, a very efficient and very powerful uh, technique. And yeah. and yeah, and that was one of the reasons why I brought it up as. Um, is because it's a bit different from the things that um, you guys and a lot of the field is focused on is using nucleases that have been identified in bacteria or um, other kinds of organisms and engineering them. And this is, you know, a similar philosophy, you know, Mm -hmm. the still identifying a target in the gene and inducing the cell to edit or replace it with some synthetic piece of DNA. Um, but from a from a chemical standpoint, how you deliver this peptide nucleic acid right. actually has a lot of other considerations and a lot of other options for adding little chemical groups or making it mm. more soluble or attaching it to other kinds of molecules. Um, and some of these things are things that are not necessarily um, easy to do or even possible with um, some other techniques. Nah, yeah, I was like, what? What were, I was going to ask? Like, what are mm-hmm. the benefits of of this in, mm-hmm. in particular? And and do they get into that in the in the review? Yeah, so they'll get into that in the review um, itself. Um, one of the one of the nice things is that the 
peptide nucleic acid itself is very specific. It's actually binding and hybridizing to a sequence of DNA. So it's not like you're inserting, it's not like you're adding a protein that chops up DNA and relying on it to specifically recognize the part that's targeting, um, which is usually very specific, but you know, in the context of a human, any chance for error is often kind of too large of a chance. And right. so so the the hope would be that something like this is very, very specific and the peptide nucleic acid itself doesn't damage the DNA, um, but it uh, comes in and binds only a very specific site and induces a later change. Thanks, Mike. Uh, and that's the review from... Uh, Peter Glazer and Mark Salzman in the issue. Yeah. And I'll also I'll add one last thing. Uh, Peter Glazer is actually going to be giving the YJBM colloquium seminar uh, coming up in January. So if you're local to the area or a Yale listener, uh, definitely keep tuned for more information about that event. Okay. Uh, Fatima, so uh, what did you choose? What article did you choose? Yeah, absolutely. So I chose an article by some of our colleagues from across the pond over in the UK. Um, it's uh, Halia Hobbled et al. Um, and it's titled Regu- Regulatory Considerations for Gene Therapy Products in the US, EU, and Japan. Um, and, and, and the reason I chose this article is because uh, Part of kind of how I describe why this issue is so exciting is it really gives you that breath about gene editing. And and you don't just get into the nitty-gritty science, but you also get into how how this actually will impact people's lives and how it practically plays out in our world. Um, and so while, while Mike has just talked about some really interesting cutting-edge technological developments in gene editing, we have to remember that at the end of the day, a lot of scientists who, who pursue this field really want to make an impact in patients' lives. Mm. As, and especially as, as a medical student, that's what I always look for. You know, I see all this basic bench lab work happening, and it is wonderful. It is amazing. We are pushing the bounds of science and knowledge. But how is that going to impact the patient that I see in the clinic who is sick? Because mm. that's, what, that's what they're going to ask you, right? Um, and part of the reason this article is so exciting is because it takes it kind of a step further. Like, so say, you know, you've, you've kind of figured out as much as you really can of the underlying science. You know, things always come to light as you go through clinical trials, but you've sorted that out as much as you can. It's, it's, it's ready to go to market. And, and what, are, what are the considerations at play for that to actually be able to reach people and change people's lives? And, and so in, in this article, um, as it says in the title, it goes into the regulatory considerations in the U.S., the EU, and Japan, um, talking about how, for example, the Food and Drug Administration or the European Medicines Administration, how, how they really impact when you have put so much money into R&D and, mm-hmm. and, and federal dollars or, or private dollars into making something work for people, kind of what sort of uh, obstacles do these, these companies or individuals face in trying to actually deliver this to an end user? Um, and I think it's really, this article in particular is really exciting because it does a really good job of providing a very kind of brief overview of what happens in each of these uh, three kind of larger categories. And and more importantly, I think it's very approachable for 
for someone who, for example, I would meet in the hospital, who would say, you know, I, I've heard about this gene therapy and, and, and the, this thing is in clinical trials, and it, mm-hmm. you know, but it's not really available. Why is that? You know, why can't I get that? And that can be sometimes difficult when you're faced with someone who who has heard through the grapevine or saw something on you know PubMed that you know this could treat me, and and right. and, and, and they ask why can't I get that? And this really goes into what are those regulatory considerations and what are the things that are stopping us from going there and what are what are the merits of that? So so for example, um, they they give an example of uh, with the with the European kind of realm of this and the EMA, they have a lot of regulatory and a centralized process for approving things, uh, kind of this market approval. But they have this sort of clause, which is a hospital exemption. So on a very limited scale, you can go out and deliver a therapy to patients without having a full kind of review of, of of the science and of the product, and that can either have really great outcomes or can have very detrimental outcomes. And one of the ones that I highlighted here is that you know there was a detrimental outcome. So this is part of why these regulatory systems are in play. But that's not to say that you know if you step back and think in the larger framework, sometimes there are drugs that are out there in clinical trials and actually you know have not been approved because the process is lengthy and and there's lawyers and there's politicians and there's laws and all this involved but at the end of the day you know there's a patient who is sick and dying right now and and you know that this drug will work and, and it has been able to save people's lives so i've found this very exciting just because it, it goes into that and and uh yeah, it's a very exciting read, so you'll have to read more. <laughs> yeah, if, if you're interested in this topic, we actually covered uh, some of these regulatory considerations in our drug development issue uh, for the podcast. But what I'm interested in is, do, do they really get into the specifics of what's different for regulatory bodies to consider when you talk about gene therapy and, and gene editing technologies? Absolutely. I mean, that is the central focus of, of this article. And I, I think one of the interesting things is that sometimes they... Uh, put, you know, gene therapy within a larger framework and, and, and they say, you know, according to these particular sets of laws, this is what you do. And they say, you know, gene therapy falls into this because of this, this, and this reason. And then you realize, mm. like, there are some laws out there specifically to gene therapies, but sometimes it's within a larger framework of, of advanced medicines, for example, when you when you look at the EU. And, and that also makes you realize that as constituents and as individuals, maybe we need to be advocating for more specialized processes that will enable kind of the intricacies that are prevalent within gene therapy products to kind of be pushed to market because it is a different kind of of, of item. You know, it is a different kind of product that you're delivering. Yeah. And how do the existing frameworks keep that from happening. And that's something that the authors actually mention in their conclusion. They say, you know, we spent this time discussing, you know, what what are, how can someone maximize their outcomes based on what is already available? How can we maximize, you know, these these regulations are in place. And what do we do to, to make sure that we can make an impact on lives of patients? But they also say, you know, and, and they're not able to really get into it as much, but I think this is this is something that is, is appealed to, to for the reader, you know, what can we do to change some of these regulations? Or what are intricacies there that, you know, have been brought to light in an article like this, which say, you know, this worked and this didn't? How does that change and how can we advocate as constituents uh, for that sort of change? Because when, mm. you know, if you look back just 
a few years ago, you know, there was a Supreme Court ruling on um, gene patenting, right? Yes, and, and, yeah. And public perception plays a huge role in what happens, right? And so how can... And, and that public perception should be well-informed. And I think that is why our articles like this are so important to get out there because they're at a level where someone with with very little understanding or information about gene editing and gene therapies can approach it and say, you know, get to the end and say, wow, I learned something and I can form my own opinion. They don't tell you what your opinion should be, no. but you can mm-hmm. make your own opinion. And when it comes time, you know, because this is a really hot topic now, when it comes time for that next Supreme Court ruling or for that bill on the floor that's going to change public health policy that will, you know, change how the FDA regulates things, who are you? Going, what are you going to activate for? Who you know? What are you going to call your senator? And, and what are you going to say? Right. And I, I think that's why articles mm. like this are so exciting. And I think part of what's really brilliant about about this article in particular is you know they choose the U.S., the EU, and Japan, and and, and you you think you know why exactly those mm-hmm. three three nations? And, and and they actually give a a good. Uh, Reason, which is that they're the founding members of the International Conference of Harmonization, an international organization which develops scientific and regulatory documents on drug development for widespread international adoption. And now why is that important? That's because if you are a drug company and you're making a drug and you are investing millions, billions of dollars into drug development, you want to make sure you can market your drug all around the world, not just in one country. You want to capture the market. And to have some sort of uh, kind of collaboration between nations so that when you actually have a drug to market that, you know, it's available everywhere and, and that, you know, companies continue to invest in, the, and, uh, in this R&D and, and continue to bring, you know, these sorts of products to patients is important. So it's, it's really interesting because when you get to learn, you know, let's say, you know, I, I'm an American citizen. Uh, I plan to live here my entire life. Why do I care what the EU, how the EU or Japan regulates it? Well, well, you should, because that will directly impact some of the decisions that these providers will mm. make. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's why it's exciting, because when you do go and advocate for this, just 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 remember and. and when, when the Supreme Court ruling on this comes up, come back and read this article. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? I mean, no, that's a really good point you bring up about because, you know, going back saying, uh, can a gene be owned? That was what was being discussed. <laughs> I mean, and think about what a gene is. Gene is information. Okay, so people are like, oh, we've been patenting information for a long time. There's precedent for that. But this is biological information that is copied over and over and over again you know, into new generations. It's like, if you own the gene, then you own it in everything. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, is that even, can we allow this? And having a good informed public on this particular issue definitely makes an impact in courtrooms. Like, I mean, those judges are human beings and they listen to, uh, they listen to like the, the discourse. They listen to these debates. Thank goodness that YJBM is open access. So yeah, exactly. that's true. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, well, Mike and Fatima, thank you so much for joining us. Before I mean, we, we could we could be here for hours. There's oh, so much absolutely. to talk about. <laughs> um, yeah, but we'll definitely you know recommend readers to check out the issue. Um, okay. And check out the future episodes of the podcast too. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. Thank you to the Yale School of Medicine for being a home for YJBM and the podcast. Thank you to the Yale Broadcast Center for help with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast. 
Thank you to our editors-in-chief, Helen Byenson and Yasmin Zakinyaz, and the rest of the YJBM staff. The YJBM podcast is made up of Helen Byenson, Erica Gorenberg, John Ventura, Ali Coleman, and myself. For more information on YJBM and our podcast, please check out our Twitter handle, at the YJBM, which features weekly updates, so you can stay tuned. And please visit our website, medicine.yale.edu slash YJBM. Be sure to check out our journal by searching Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine at PubMed.com. If you'd like to contact, contact us, email us at YJBM at Yale.edu. And thank you all for listening.